a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. I hope you're going to remember all these names. Isaiah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, Abiud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Eliud, Eliud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Well, there's a lot of really cool stories if we were to go back and unpack some of those characters and the stories of their lives, but we're not going to do too much of that today. But we are going to ask ourselves, so what? What what does it matter that we just read through that long list of people who are part of Jesus' family tree? And what's going on in these generations that are listed? From Abraham to David, first of all, and then from David to the exile, and then from the exile to Christ. And, And Matthew takes pains to break it up into those sections so that we know there's a bit of a flow of what's happening in history. Well, big picture, there's a whole bunch of promises that God had made to Abraham, first of all, and then he'd made a whole bunch more promises to David about how God was going to use their descendants to bless the whole world. There will be an everlasting kingdom of peace where people are going to live under God's gracious rule and we will flourish in that condition. And the prophets who came later reaffirmed these promises, calling people back to depending on God in those seasons where they wandered away and put their trust in other things. Calling them back to obedience to God when out of their rebellious hearts they stopped wanting to do what he had commanded them to do. But despite that, ultimately God needed to discipline them by removing his protection, sending them away into exile for 70 years, which is a part of the story that Matthew touches upon. But after bringing them back into the promised land, he reaffirmed all his promises to his nations. But when you look at the names from the exile to Christ, there's not many familiar ones. In the early on stages, you might remember some of the stories, you might have read them in the Old Testament and say, yeah, I know who that character was and I know what God did in their situation. That person obeyed God, that person disobeyed God, but God was active in the storyline. But you get from the exile onward and there's a lot of question marks. What was God doing in all of those years? What was God doing to fulfill the promises that he'd given to Abraham and to David? There's not a bunch of stories about that. 
And in fact, since God doesn't seem to have been at work in the stories of Azor or Zadok or Akim or Elihud or Eleazar or Methan or Jacob or even Joseph himself, as far as anyone could tell, there are other people who have been saying, you know what? We need to do something about the condition that our nation is in. We are under foreign rulers again. We are being oppressed again. Our worship is being stifled again. The nation has gone into corruption again. We need to restore the rule of God. And there were people who had sought to do something about putting their nation back on track, getting the experience of life of the everyday people back to where it could be if only God's promises were being fulfilled. And so there were some characters who rose up uh, in order to try and fix the problems that their nation was facing, to try and restore the dreams that God had given them so many years ago. And if you read forward in the story to Acts chapter 5, the teacher Gamaliel talks about a couple of these guys. In Acts 5 from verse 36 we read, Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed and all his followers were dispersed and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. See, as you look back in the history of the nation, they'd been through a time of prosperity under David where through faith in God and obedience to him, they'd experienced the blessings of the partial fulfillment of all the things that God had promised. And they looked forward to everything being fulfilled that God had said, first to Abraham and then to David. But then through disobedience and unfaithfulness, the nation needed to be disciplined. They went off into a really dark time. And for us, you might say, well, 70 years in exile, you can say that very quickly. What was that like for those who saw their nation decimated by savage foreign armies and who were carted off into foreign lands, most of them dying in those lands and never going back to their homeland? What would it have been like to have come back into the land and seen everything that had been built up over generations destroyed, the land ruined? It would have been such a traumatic experience. And yet there were prophets there saying, but don't give up. God is still faithful. He is going to restore us. All of these promises will be fulfilled. And as this tiny fledgling group of returned exiles got busy trusting God and and doing what he'd asked them to do, they saw God start to work and provide for them and protect them. And said, okay, so we haven't lost it. We're going to see God do something. But then after a bit, the story goes quiet. And you just don't hear of God working through this promised line, the descendants of David. You see some amazing things happening through other people who stepped up. The Greeks had oppressed the nation. There were some terrible things going on. A family called the Maccabees stood up and and God helped them out and they did great things. But it wasn't according to the plan that God had originally given them. It was kind of this thing happening off to the side. It's not even told in the Bible because it's not the flow of the the storyline that God wanted to tell, the plan he was working out for humanity. And so year after year, person after person, there's this silence then. The Romans have come in, the nation is being oppressed, people are saying, where are you God? And there doesn't seem to be any answers. And those who do rise up and say, well maybe God will be with us like he was with those Maccabees when we were under Greek rule. Or maybe God will be with us like he was with those exiles who returned and were under threat and God protected them through Nehemiah and others. Or maybe we'll be like Gideon who even though he only had a few hundred men was able to throw off hundreds of thousands of Midianite oppressors. And they might have dreamed that their storyline could have been part of what God was doing but clearly they weren't listening to God because as Gamaliel says, God wasn't with them. 
And that showed in how things worked out. And sometimes our lives feel a bit like that as well. Sometimes we want God to use us or work in our situations in a particular way, but we don't feel that God is with us. We're not in tune with him. We're not actually walking in the plans that he has set for us. Their efforts came to nothing. But about the time that Judas, that Galilean, was struggling against the injustices of Roman oppression, trying to raise a band of people to throw off Roman rule, there was another guy in Galilee. And he was facing a struggle as well. His struggle wasn't so, off getting, uh, so much getting rid of Roman oppression. He was facing a much more personal heartbreak. And that's the next story that Matthew tells as he begins his gospel. He says, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. And you can read through that part of the story very quickly. But let's stop and think about what it was like for Joseph in this moment. He's a guy who's had his dreams and his plans shattered. This woman, who he thought he knew, um, has now uh, become pregnant and he knows that he's not the father. Uh, they were betrothed, which is like being engaged, but more significant in terms of the, the binding nature of what that arrangement is. And so she apparently has been unfaithful to him from a human point of view. Uh, he's feeling betrayed, he's feeling scorned, he's feeling disappointed. There would be anger, there'd be confusion, there'd be doubt. And I'm sure if he was like most of us, when he heard a story from her lips about this being actually God doing something amazing, it would have just been like rubbing salt into the wound. Come on, I know how people get pregnant and that's not it. Um, it just would have been a dark place. But testament to the character of the man, in the midst of his pain, He's not seeking to get revenge. He's not seeking to do what he has a right to do. He's actually trying to figure out, how do I do this well so I still care for this woman who has done the wrong thing, but yet I'm able to get on with my life and not be completely destroyed by what's happening here. I wonder how many sleepless nights he spent pondering this. I wonder how many people he talked to. I wonder who he sought advice from or comfort from. And I wonder if the cry of his heart to God is, how come you've let this happen to me? And the Bible describes Joseph as a righteous man. I've always tried to do the right thing, God. Why have you let my life just go to mud all of a sudden? Well, before we get to the answer to that question, I want to share the story of a few other characters who Matthew introduces us to and Luke introduces us to as they set the scene for the arrival of Jesus. So let's turn to Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 1. We read the story. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. And his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. And don't we often think, you know, the better we do at obeying God, the better God should do at helping us? Isn't that often the way we think? It's like Christian karma. You know, God, I've done all of this stuff for you. Surely I deserve you to give me what I want, the little things that I'm asking for. That is often how uh, the human mind works. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. This is part of the story that is a little before the events that we've just written about, uh, read about in Matthew chapter 1. And I wonder how it would have felt for them, this elderly couple serving God faithfully and consistently for many years, praying earnestly for a child and yet remaining childless year after year after year, until they've both concluded 
It's too late for us now. I wonder how that felt in a culture where children were a measure of a woman's worth and a man's blessing. Elizabeth tells us later in the passage, it felt like disgrace to them. It would have felt unfair. Weren't we just as deserving as those people out there who are being blessed with children? And I wonder at what point Zechariah gave up praying. He knows, you know what, my prayers haven't been answered, that's, that's me done. The passage goes on to describe that he had given up long ago. And we'll finish with just one more story. It's the story of a lady named Anna. She was married for only seven years when her husband died. And after his death, she spent every day in the temple courts. She was praying, she was fasting, worshipping, and speaking words to others that had been given to her from God. And she was at least 84 years old by the time we meet her in Luke chapter 2. And over the last 20 years of being in the temple courts daily, she would have witnessed Herod's amazing renovations of the temple courts. Uh, from being a fairly humble building and, and surrounding area, Herod turned it into one of the wonders of the world. Not because he wanted to honour God and worship God and let everyone know that God was magnificent. Herod knew that this was a way to consolidate his own power, his standing with both the Romans and with the Jewish elites. So there was more and more industry going on. There was more and more, sadly, corruption in that place. So not only did Anna experience the grief of losing a husband early, she had the grief of watching her beloved temple that she came to every day to worship and fast and pray and minister become more and more corrupt. From a simple house of prayer, it became a beautiful den of thieves. And the heart would have been breaking. So where is God in that? What's the kind of the so what? Why? Thanks, Mike. Just wanted to come along and get encouraged today. Just have my spirits lifted. Story after story of, man, life sucks, doesn't it? But there is a so what. And there's a reason why we're not rushing on to read the next few verses which tell us of some lighter and some happier things happening. There's a reason why we need to focus on the difficult and the discouraging and the frustrating and the dark times rather than reading ahead. And the reason is because real life is not like a story you read in a book or a movie where you can fast forward a chapter. In real life, we're often stuck in those moments that you can't get out of. Uh, and those moments seem to go on and on, and they're hard to endure. There's no fast-forward button in real life, no skipping to the next episode, no flicking to the end of the book just to make sure, yeah, it is going to work out all right. Okay, I suppose I can keep reading. And tragically, there's a lot of Christians who have been taught that faith in God means that you can't spend time in lament, that cry of the heart that says, life is hard and I'm hurting. That you shouldn't spend time wrestling with doubt and with fear. That you're not allowed to feel let down or angry with God. You're not supposed to just feel sad. You know, haven't we got so many reasons to rejoice? We should just get on to that stuff. So not only when life is hard do people often feel bad, but tragically, when religion takes a form like that, you also feel bad because you feel bad. It's just heaping more and more weight. But that's not the Bible. That's not how God describes our relationship with him. The Bible tells stories of people who endured hard times, dark times, sometimes for a long time. People who weren't afraid to share their struggles in community. They didn't keep them hidden away. You know, more than one-third of the Psalms which is the songbook of Jewish worship, are psalms of lament. Psalms that contain phrases like, How long, O Lord? Where are you, O Lord? Why, O God? It's the largest single category in the Jewish songbook. 
And if you read through the Minor Prophets, uh, I was talking to somebody just before the service about a couple of those stories and and chatting to somebody else during the week about one of my favourites, which I learnt as a kid. There's this song at the end of the book of Habakkuk, as I call it, Habakkuk, if you've got a different way of pronouncing it. Um, And it's this song of great praise in God, even when life is not turning out the way that you'd hoped. Um, But before that, there's this long conversation where Habakkuk is complaining to God and saying, God, what? What are you doing? This doesn't make sense. You're not being fair. And it's only after that long conversation that his heart is ready to say, but you know what? Even if I don't see things change, I know who you are and I can trust in you. That's the way the Bible works. If we don't get real with God and with each other, we close ourselves off from the healing that God wants to give us in the midst of our pain. We become victims of our circumstances and only if our circumstances changed will I be okay. But that's not life and it's not how God works in the midst of this fallen world. So there's a principle that I want to give you today that I'd love us all to grasp and think about as we engage with what it means to follow the Prince of Peace in a culture that would rather distract or entertain us rather than deal with the real stuff of life. And here's the principle for today. Peace doesn't come from getting stuck in lament, but it does come from getting started there. If you want real peace in your heart, peace that can endure through any circumstance in life, peace that can endure any of the hard and the dark and the frustrating and the long and the lonely, then you need to be able to start with a sense of honesty with God and expressing to God in company with others the reality of what you face. It doesn't come from getting stuck there, but you do need to start there. You see, God could have told Joseph in advance, Joseph, I'm going to do this in your story. Uh, Mary is going to become pregnant. And Joseph could have had the knowledge ahead of time so he didn't need to feel the weight of betrayal and confusion and wrestling. But God knew that both Joseph and those his life touched needed him to be able to go through that experience. God was listening to the prayers of Zechariah and Elizabeth year after year after year and he felt and cared about the fact that they were disappointed and they were heartbroken because he's a loving father and he didn't rejoice in the suffering that they were going through. But he knew that John the Baptist, the child that they would eventually have, needed to be born at a precise time. And they needed to be prepared to be the exact kind of parents that would be needed for John in order for him to prepare the way for the saviour and God would have heard the prayers of Anna as year after year she saw the corruption growing in the temple and her heart continued to break but then at the right time he gave her the peace of being able to hold in her hands the Messiah and to know that even though all of this stuff around her that everybody else thought was awesome but she knew from experience stunk everything else on the outside might be terrible but here in this little package there's hope Hope for the whole world. And she got to experience that. But how do you avoid getting stuck in lament, stuck in that sense of, God, life is hard, if that is your starting point? How do you know that it's okay that your experience isn't yet matching up to God's promises? When it's okay to ask, how long, O Lord, when things seem to get worse? That it's okay to chafe at the injustice when other people's hopes are being fulfilled but yours are not? How do you know that that even though that's okay, that you can still move through that and beyond that if those promises haven't yet been fulfilled for you? There's two critical 
things that the Bible has to say about that. There's more than two, but these are the two that are repeated time and time again. So that in the midst of our pain, we can find God and experience his presence. The first principle is this. Lament is not the worship of pain in the absence of God. It's not the worship of God in the absence of pain. But lament is the worship of God in the midst of pain. How does that work? Well, often in life we can do one of the first two things. We can worship pain in the absence of God. And what do I mean? Like, like who would worship pain? That's stupid. But when I say worship pain, it's when that issue, that uh, disappointment, that relationship, that career goal, that um, health condition, whatever it might be, that is a genuinely huge thing in your life, when that becomes everything to you, when that sets the agenda for how you feel and what you do and how you speak, you know, when that is actually the controlling entity of your life, effectively that is playing the role of a God for you. And it's hard to kind of say that because it's so natural when you are facing huge issues for those issues to drive everything that's going on in your life. I mean, that's often the point that we start in when, when we have particularly huge struggles. Yeah, they're dominant. And yeah, we struggle to rip our focus away from that. Um, but lament, the ability to process that pain well, is not where we are stuck in having our lives revolve around our pain. But neither is doing the thing that so often our world calls us to. And as I mentioned earlier, sadly, even religion calls us to, which is actually to worship God in the absence of pain. Which is like, well, park your pain there, come to church and you know, if you're into it, wave your hands around or clap or just sing really loudly. Uh, remember God's promises, listen to an inspiring message from God's word. Uh, go around in the, the hall after and say, hey, how you doing? You good? Excellent. Um, pain is not actually worship, uh, sorry, lament is not worshipping God in those ways, which are great. And just ignoring your pain and leaving it to the side as though it doesn't fit. Um, because that's not real worship. Um, that's actually worshipping a God who isn't interested in your pain, and that's, that's not who God is. Um, that's a false kind of worship. And sometimes what that shows is that it's not so much God that we're worshipping, the real God who cares about everything in our life. We're actually worshipping a God who is only for the good times, a God who only gives us the, the fun things, who provides for our material needs, who gives us those things that we're asking for. And it's like, well, I can worship that God, but then I've got to go deal with my pain again. Now, that doesn't work either. The, the way to move forward in lament is to actually be able to worship God in the midst of pain. I heard a story recently from a lady who um, had been just having this huge personal struggle in her life. Um, and I won't tell you the, the details of the struggle, but it wasn't just her. There was a whole community of people who were angry, who were grieving, who were confused. And she was just heartbroken. And she went to her church, and it was one of those services, and there's nothing wrong with this, where it's upbeat songs, and it's celebrating the promises of God, and celebrating the things that he's done in our life. And everybody was just you know, up and about and having a great time. And as she was in that worship service, she was lonelier than she had ever been in her life which is so sad. You should never be lonely in church. But as people are worshipping on that level, she's just not there. She's got stuff going on in her heart that that's not ministering to. Until a friend who knew something of the struggle that she was going through came across to her and just put her arm around her and cried with her in the midst of this service. That's church. That's being able to say, hey, we're worshipping a God right now and all of these things that people are getting excited about are true, but right now this is how I'm feeling and I, and I just want to feel that with somebody who gets it and will be present with me in the midst of it and to know that God is present with me in the midst of it and his purposes are always true and all of that good stuff. But worship, true worship, actually comes from where you are right now. 
Not where other people say you ought to be, it's where you are, because that's where God is too. So, lament is not the worship of pain in the absence of God. It's not the worship of God in the absence of pain. It's the worship of God in the midst of pain. And that story leads us to that second point, which is that suffering is lonely. Um, when you're suffering, sometimes you don't know how to explain it, or even if you do, you're not sure if people understand. Or, or you know, It just feels often like a lonely experience. But lament is a communal thing. You read those psalms that I mentioned earlier, one third of them, it's when people actually bring their suffering to the community and they express it together. Either things they're all going through or things that some of them are going through. We are meant to be able to grieve together. You know what, nothing builds true community as much as being there for each other in the hard times. It's often awkward. It's often clumsy. We're often not sure what to say or what to do and it'd be easier to avoid it. I mean, it's easy to party with each other, but knowing how to be present with each other in hard times, it's often a struggle. But it's often in those clumsy attempts to love each other in those moments that really knit us together. And the gift of being open enough to let somebody journey with you is an important aspect of our lament. Now, Jesus tells us to uh, weep with those who weep as well as rejoice with those who rejoice. Learning how to be present, how to listen well, how to ask good questions and to enter into that is an important part of what church does. It makes us more prayerful, makes us more dependent on God, makes us more focused on eternity. It makes us more humble and aware of our need. It does so much good to us when we are willing to lament together. So those are two basic principles that I hope will be helpful for you as you go through those harder times in life. We are meant to be a people of lament. But lament is not uh, the, the worship of pain in the absence of God. And it's not worshipping God in the absence of pain. It's being able to worship God. And is it an immediate thing where you click your fingers and do it? No. Uh, getting our attention off our pain and lifting our eyes to God, sometimes God has to be really patient in enabling us to do that. But it's the process we need to be on and it's a process that we need to help each other as we do it in community. You know, Gamaliel referred back to this guy by the name of Thutis. And uh, Thutis, here we go. Thutis was a guy who um, he saw what he wanted to be. He considered himself to be somebody who said, I'm going to go after what I want in life. God wasn't with him in that. Then there was this other guy, Judas the Galilean, and Judas' story was, I see these problems, I'm going to solve them. And God wasn't with him in that either. In the same way, when you chase your desires or try to fix your own problems yourself, God's not always going to be with you in that, in the way that you'd hope. But when you allow yourself to worship God, to tune into him, to express to him what's going on, and allow him to write your story in his timing, trusting him and obeying him, the outcomes will be different. And when Jesus was born, he didn't fix everything straight away. He lived a long time among people who were in darkness, people who were in struggling. And at the right time, he revealed himself as saviour of the world. So as we come together in the painful times and lament, may we always remember that our God is with us. Let me finish with this conclusion to the story. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and didn't want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So there's Joseph. He's in the middle of struggle and he's trying to figure out what to do, how to do what is right in, even while his heart is hurting. But after he had considered this, how long after? We don't know. 
After he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means... God with us. He's right there. Whatever your starting point is, God is with us. And we know that because of Jesus. He set aside his glory. He lived among us. He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. We will never be alone in our pain again and no sorrow will ever be wasted. Let's pray. Father, we pray today for those who, like Joseph, are reeling from unexpected heartache and grappling with what to do in response. We pray for those who are like Zechariah and Elizabeth, living with the ache of unfulfilled desires and even feeling like others are looking down on them for the situation that they're in. We pray for those who are like Anna, who have experienced loss Things that they love, people that they love, snatched away or slowly corrupted. Father, we ask that you would help us to not be like Thutis, who sought to fulfill his own ambitions and desires without you. Would you show us where we have become caught up in our own dreams and our own ambitions? Lord, would you help us to avoid the error of Judas? who fought against the injustices of this world in his own way instead of in yours, in his own strength instead of in yours. Would you show us where that might be happening in our lives? Both these men and their followers missed out on seeing what you were doing and being part of your good work in the world. Would you help us to tune in to the patient work that you are doing to bring salvation to us and to the people around us? And we thank you for Jesus, who is our Emmanuel, our God with us. Thank you that even though we may feel alone sometimes, you are with all who will receive you by faith. Grant us that faith, we pray. We thank you that nothing can separate us from your love. Nothing can frustrate your good plans for us. So give us the grace and strength to bring our pain to you in lament, to choose to worship you even in the midst of that pain, and to help each other in doing that. As we do, may we see more clearly than ever. May we trust you more completely than ever. May we love you more deeply than ever. Because you are the Prince who brings us peace. Amen.